Hey listeners, it's KJ here, asking for a favor. Have you reviewed hashtag amwriting in your pod player yet? Would you? I know, you're driving or running or cooking or whatever you do while listening, and we are there for that. But if you love us and could take a minute to hit that five-star button and toss in a comment, we'd appreciate it. Oh, and if you don't love us, carry on with what you're doing. In fact, we hear the review button isn't working right now. Don't check. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay! Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone and try to remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. Okay. Hey, welcome to the hashtag AmWriting Podcast. This is the podcast about writing all the things, long things, short things, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, memoir, all the things. Um, I'm Jess Leahy. I am the author of The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation, and I am your host today, along with a guest I have been wanting on this podcast for so long. Um, We have not really had a chance to talk about writing cookbooks, and this is a cookbook I picked up and for the recipes and for the fact that it's based in Vermont and was taken with the writing. So today we are going to be talking to um, author, cookbook author, uh, baker, uh, television personality, Gazina Bullock-Prado and um, enjoy the show. I am here with a, um, a guest that I have been dying to have on the show for a long time now um, because she is a wonderful cookbook author. She has written also a memoir, a, a baking memoir. And as I may have talked about in the past, baking memoirs, cooking memoirs are actually one of my very favorite genres. I think I've mentioned um, Fuchsia Dunlop's um, Shark Fin Soup and something, something, Sichuan Peppercorn and Shark Fin Soup or yeah. something like that. Anyway, um, I am here with Gazina Bullock Prado, and um, she has just recently come out with one of my new favorite cookbooks called My Vermont Table. So welcome to the show, Gazina. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And um, and how often do you go on interviews where people automatically mispronounce your name? Uh, well, they, usually if it's an interview, they ask me beforehand. Gotcha. But I let my favorite is when I, because I teach, I have a baking school. And there's students who are so convinced at the pronunciation of my name. Jazine, I assume. They say Jazine. Yeah. Jazine. <laughs> but they insist on saying it a thousand times. And I like by the 10th time, I'm like, I cannot correct them because it's like, <laughs> because they're saying it with such confidence. I'm like, I just, just, I know who they mean. <laughs> Jazine, I'm like, okay, I'll say yes. <laughs> That's some really magical thinking there. If I just say it enough times, it will change your name and It'll make change, it correct yeah. for me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyway, we are sitting here in Gazina's beautiful house, um, which we will probably talk about because she also hosts a, has a cooking school here, Sugar Glider Kitchen. But I first came across Gazina's work, I think, through King Arthur because you've worked with King Arthur for a long time. Yeah. Which is, and I say this so many times, I was, when I lived in New York, so spoiled to have King Arthur Bakery yeah. in our backyard. Yeah. Like, and they're 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 baking school too, and I still teach there. Yeah, they they're magic. Uh, their beasting cake is one of my very favorite things That's in good. the whole entire world. Um, so the reason I wanted to talk to you about this cookbook in particular is for a couple of reasons, because the writing stands out in this cookbook. Like 
you know, there are lots of cookbooks I love. I'm a big cook. I'm um, not as much a baker, more of a cook. And I, um, I have a lot of them and I don't usually read them for the, you know, the stories and all that stuff, unless it's one of those very specific, like Fuchsia Dunlop's book, which is so what I love. It's that sort of memoir slash cookbook mm-hmm. all in one, which can be a tricky sell because where do you put it? Do you put it in cookbooks right. yep. or do you put it in memoirs? And yet you have done that beautifully here. And clearly your publisher has figured out what to do with this book, which is a little bit of both. And those are difficult to market. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I would love to talk a little bit about sort of how you came to write this book after some of the other books that you've written, including... Um, Bake the Baker's Confidential, Baking Confidential, Confidential. What is what was the bake? Sorry, the one when you had. I have it on my table next to my bed. The one that you wrote about your baker, your baking. Oh, Confessions of a Closet Master. Thank you, Confessions of a Closet (laughs) Master Baker, which is. So much better than the title I just said. <laughs> well, there's there, they actually have two titles. So Confections of a Closet Master Baker was the hardcover. And then Random House changed it to My Life from Scratch to something very kind of generic, but still tells a story. But it doesn't imply a dirty joke. I know. Well, they when <laughs> before it was published, I got a call from my editor that um, she's like, did you... We just had a meeting. Did you know there's an unintentional pun in the title? I'm like, that was only intentional. <laughs> Don't underestimate me. Of course, it's my intentional. Eight, and my my eight year old boy sense of humor. No, yeah. So yeah, it's interesting that the, the publishers are interesting. There's actually a whole. Um, we have this conversation all the time about. There are a bunch of books out there. Um, there's one called uh, Shitty Moms, which, of course, they put a star in sure. there. Yeah. There's another book called um, Don't Raise Your Kids to Be Assholes uh, mm-hmm. by a, a writer that I really enjoy. Um, but those are, that's tough. So mm-hmm. did they change the title specifically because of the dirty joke that was implied? I, well, it, it, it was published with that title in the hardcover. And you can still get it. Um, I think they just, I think they wanted, I think they thought it would sell better. Yeah. I have the paperback, so I have the other title. All right. Okay. So let's talk, now that we're over the dirty jokes, let's talk about how you got (laughs) to my Vermont table, where the idea came from, and what it was you wanted to do with this book. Um, Well, it's my first savory cookbook, though. They're all sweet. So my... um, this is my seventh book total. So the other the other cookbooks have been all baking. Mm-hmm. All, and some of them have savory baking in them, but they're all like baking, baking, baking. Which is and not surprising because that's sort of what, what you're known for, right? I, uh, I am a baking instructor, instructor and pastry chef. And then I had this show on Food Network. Uh, I forgot the name of my show. <laughs> that's okay. Terrible. I forgot the name of your book. <laughs> what was it baking in Vermont is what it was called, which is not a cannabis show. Baking in Vermont was, <laughs> was about baking in Vermont in my baking school. But in that show, so the premise was, as these premise, these shows must have a premise usually, is that I had this baking school attached to my house. and But I also cook because I eat because <laughs> I am human. And so the artifice of those shows are that you always have to have some event going on in your life, which will, you know, where you orchestrate this big meal, right? So you have to be leading up to something. And so I, you know, I was like, well, I've got plenty of things to, to make that I love. And so the way I cooked appealed to people as well as the way I baked. And so I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then uh, the publisher came to me and said, would you like to write a book about, you know, not based on Baked in Vermont, but kind of that 
caters to the fact that you have created a fan base that liked right. the way you bake and the way you cook. I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. So clearly you had, since our, this is one of our very favorite questions that all our listeners always ask is, you had an agent already, correct? Yes, correct. How did you come, how did you find your agent way back when at the beginning of this journey? She, oh, she found me. This was a funny story. So I, I had, I had written confections mm-hmm. and I sent it around as you do, like, you know, blind. I, so I had the cover letter, yada, yada, yada. And I submitted it to agencies and I had a few meetings and then I met someone that I really liked and it, the way I had written it was just like a full on the, the narrative was just, the timeline was just beginning, you know, child, adult. It was just, mm-hmm. yeah, very boring, but it was, it was still, you know, it was my ring. It was, there was something there that she really liked, but she was very young and she couldn't figure out. It was essentially my first draft. She couldn't figure out what we needed to do. Right. <laughs> and I kept going. I like kept. That's a flaw. E- yeah. I kept emailing her and, and calling her and saying, listen, I'm, I know we need, we need to edit this. We need to edit the shit out of this. So, you know, let's talk about it. And she, I don't think she could wrap her head around it. And so I, I fired her. Yeah. We've Uh, actually interviewed other authors who've said pretty much that story. And that tends to be the end of that. So my first agent, she was a baby and I, she was lovely, but she just didn't know what to do. So clearly we needed to edit the book and as one does, I mean, who doesn't need to edit a thousand and one times? Um, it's actually a warning sign that lots of authors talk about that they don't have the right fit when they know a book needs to be edited. And then you get what you hope would be like the dream. Oh, no, it's great. It's wonderful. That's a warning sign. right? Well, there. and the thing, too, is that it, it was my first book. It was the first time right. I'd ever, you know, I, I had been writing short stories and like, you know, but... Writing the memoir was just something because we had moved to Vermont for me to both go to culinary school and for me to just write. And as it turns out that my baking took off. And so we opened up the shop. Right. And so you think you have this. This was my dream. I had it in my mind that we okay if we do have a shop, then I'll bake in the morning, early morning. Right. (laughs) This is what I do. And then I'll open the doors to the shop and I'll be at, at front of the house at that point. With my laptop. Mm-hmm. And it's, it was so hallmark. It's that like, sounds you perfectly hear, reasonable. Ding, people yeah. come in and you get you sell a pastry and some coffee. And then you tick, you know clickety-clack. I'm right, 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 right. Didn't happen that way. No. So instead I was working from like 3 a.m. till 7 p.m. baking. And so there are so many. It's Vermont. And it was Montpelier, Vermont. There were so many writers that were our customers. And we said, let's have a writer's group that meets here at the bakery. Oh, that's cool. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. So that's what we did. Yeah. And then so I had to take time to write. So I would, at 11 a.m., after the, the morning bake was done, I would write. And then I would meet with them. And then I started, so, and we kind of all talked about what would be the thing that I would concentrate mm-hmm. on. And they're like, this is a great story. Yeah. Write, write about yeah. the story of how this came to be. And so that's what I did. And it was from that uh, group that I was able to write my first draft. Mm-hmm. And then I sent it, stupidly, I sent it off pretty, pretty quickly. 
I mean, I was a baby. What did yeah, I know? I was like, this is great. Yeah. Like, I oh, finished it. KJ, KJ told me one time, I used to teach at the school where her kids went to school and at pickup one time, she said, you know, you make me really nervous. And I said, why? And she said, because you just send stuff off to people. <laughs> I, just, I, don't know. I mean, I look back on it and I'm like, the shame. Yeah. You, know, you get the, I know. Like, the, the, that heat rash that you get when you think back and you're like, oh, the shame. I was excited. I was excited. I was excited. Yeah. That's exactly it. So... But, uh, but it was a good thing that, you know, clearly, even though it wasn't the draft, it was good enough to get uh-huh. someone interested. But uh, so then I had this lovely agent who was very young. She just didn't know how to um, tackle it with me. Yeah. She didn't, she didn't know. And I was obviously I was more than willing. I was like, let's, let's get this out there and let me, let me kind of tackle what we need to tackle. But she didn't know what to do. So then I, I fired her as one does. Um, and it stinks, but it's what you got to do. And another agent at that agency wrote me and said, this, I understand if you don't want to be with our agency, but I had read your manuscript when it first came in and she jumped on it first, but I would love to work with you. And I, and, and, and I have, and I have thoughts about how to move forward. And I was like, why would I say no to that? I mean, yeah. this is somebody who has a plan. And if the plan isn't what I think is good, then, well, that's that. But, mm-hmm. and she's been my agent ever since. And I love her. I think if anyone gets it, gets you, is interested, um, I, I think that's the first signal that that fit might be right. She, I mean, and she's the one who came up with the narrative structure that just not, literally knocked me into shape. The second she said it, I'm like, Oh, and I'm like, I, 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 the way I remember it, I hung up the phone without saying anything else. And I sat down and I fixed it. And I like, I remember I got it done within two weeks because everything was there, but she said, this is how it should be structured. I'm like, oh yes, it should. Oh yes, it should. Click. I talked about those frustrating moments where, um, my editor will suggest something and the contrary person in me wants to be like, no, no, no. The way I wrote it is great. And then like a couple hours later, I come back to it. I'm like, oh darn it she was right yeah that happens a lot too I have that too but in in this case I had been so I I clearly knew that what how I had written it that there were things that I would I I kept pretty much everything that I had written in there but of course I lost (laughs) right (laughs) I good half of it yeah and then added more and so so while um so her narrative idea was to uh structure the book around um my day at the at the shop. Mm-hmm. So from the moment I woke up yeah. to the moment we closed, and then you could weave in the stories of how it all came to be in the memories of the bake. That's which cool. was great. Which yeah. was great. So this explains a lot. You mentioned that you wrote short stories first. So for you, I mean, I'm, I know you've been a baker for a long time and it's been a passion of yours for mm-hmm. a long time, but parallel to that, apparently yeah. there was a lot of writing going on. There was a on. lot of writing That's, going that on. That explains a lot for yeah. me. So speaking of narrative structure, my Vermont table revolves around the six seasons yeah. of Vermont, which if you haven't lived here in Vermont, you may not know this, but we have six very real seasons. And um, that seasonal structure happens to be one that I love. And I know that, you know, a lot of people do that. A lot of books do that, but it works particularly well with yours because there's the unique aspect of there being six instead of the four, yes. which is lovely. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was a, that was immediate. 
there was an immediacy to that structure. Mm-hmm. I, I walked into the book with that structure. Okay. So the, the publisher came to me saying, do you want to write this book? And I came in, I'm like, yes, and this is how I would do it. Yeah. And it was so natural. I think with cookbooks, it's so tough, especially since I've been doing baking books, you like have to try yeah. to force a narrative structure onto mm-hmm. it. Right. It's like, how am I going to divide this up into like, Custards, uh, you know, fruit. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just like oh, I'm so yeah. tired. <laughs> it hurts. But with this one, it was very natural in the stories, and I had. It was also about Vermont. It was a story about Vermont as well, and about how I cook, which is to me very personal. My baking is is not less personal, but I am a teacher, so there's so much technicality to it. And, and it's uh, baking is by its nature a little bit less seasonal because you know I mean yes there's the yeah. berries and the things but essentially you're dealing with some ingredients that are available year uh, round always yeah, yeah. and it, just the nature of of you know baking itself being a very technical sport <laughs> that that the whole idea of cooking and bringing in influences from um, my family my German family and my American family. But also I was just so fascinated by, I think about this all the time and we live in this tavern that was built in the 1700s. So it was built on hospitality and feeding people. And I think about this all the time that when people fed people in the 1700s, it took so damn long. Mm -hmm. The day was all about, you had to build a fire, you had to keep it hot, you had to do all this stuff. I mean, the work that went into it. And I was so, I kept thinking about these women, I'm just going to say, these women who worked their asses off Mm -hmm. all the time. And so I, so I, I, I looked at a lot of old school recipes. I mean, (laughs) my favorite one was like, it's not a recipe. It was this woman saying what she does with her leftovers, say turkey for the holidays. Mm-hmm. So you have a, cor- a carcass with some meat kind of clinging to it and you put it into a sugaring um, pot. So it would have been one of the huge, huge, like I'm assuming it was a big metal vessel that was the size of a, you know, a house. <laughs> and she, you put your leftover carcass in there with water and with um, corn, corn meal. And then you boil it until it becomes a thickened mass. Oh. So think about like yeah. really like, so imagine. Like a that, gruel. Yeah, a gruel. But when it, when, <laughs> when it cools down, it gets pretty solid right. so that you can like, and she says, what you do is you leave it outside in the winter. Oh, so it freezes solid. And when, depending on how many people you need to feed, you go outside with your ax and you lop off whatever okay, you need to bring inside yeah. to reheat. And I thought that sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, I could just, see, I could see her buffalo plaid. I could yeah. see, you know, just the whole, her coming up, swinging an axe. Getting- I, I have to say the New Hampshire and Vermont, um, having lived in New Hampshire, having lived right near a house that was also a tavern and had been a tavern for the town since the beginning of the town. There is so much wrapped up in my imagination when I drive past those places. And yeah. especially since there's one in Lyme in particular that is now, again, feeding people. And yep. um, it's uh, there for me, it's not just about the fact that that was a place for locals. It was a place for everyone who passed through. And right. so it's almost like there's this romance. It's a weird tangent. But when I think about having been a Latin teacher and I was just in Pompeii and I was talking to my kids about how Latin evolved and how Latin evolved into Italian. 
And it was because people were coming from all of these places. Yeah. And so there was also this ability, even within these small rural communities, for the food to evolve because people were passing through. Right. There's yeah. something that I've always, I don't know, taverns have just always had this incredible romance to me as, as a safe harbor. Like you would see the lights coming on a dark, snowy yeah. night from far away. And I would just always love that. Yeah. And, and this was the stagecoach stop from so it would go to Woodstock mm-hmm. and then so it was Boston here mm-hmm. Woodstock where the courts were mm-hmm. at that time locally and then Montreal so it would be oh, like, wow. so okay. it was a a, little, a great little waylay station and so um and we have read Free Grace Levitt and Jerusha Levitt were the ones who built this house and we have found letters written by Free Grace's brother that described just the road conditions in the area and about what the driving was like in the winter. So at that time, they would use horse-drawn sleds. And there are some hills. And there are hills. Here. But it's like he would go into just minute detail, granular detail about snowpack. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and they didn't. And what I love is how we talk about our road conditions like the dirt road. Yeah. And it's like, oh, my God, we've been doing this for how long? Well, what I love years? about here also is that they didn't, obviously, they didn't really plow. What they did was pull those big rollers behind they the horses. They compacted it. Right. They compacted the that. snow. And, uh, but yeah, I think about that all the time. People are like, is your house haunted? I'm like, I don't think so. I, you know, it was a tavern. So if anybody died here, they were probably tipsy and happy. And <laughs> it was, it was, it was fine. I don't know. But also the church was right where that house is there. And as it happens, the church was an all day affair and the women and children would have to stay in mm-hmm. the church and the men would come over here and um, do their thing. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, listeners, if you are interested in seeing any pictures of any of the things we're talking about, I will dump a couple into the show notes <laughs> so that you can see them on our on our Substack. Um, so tell the, for the listeners who don't know, what are the six seasons? So the six seasons are mud season, which is prior to spring. So right when the snow is beginning to thaw and mud, because when the snow thaws, the dirt roads turn into mud. And, and in Vermont, our, there's about 6,000 miles of dirt road, more than our paved roads. So we are predominantly dirt roads here. So lots of mud. Mm-hmm. Um, and because our seasons uh, fall behind, our spring doesn't come until much later than the rest of the United States, much of it, uh, we get that extra season. And then, of course, we've got the other spring, summer, fall, and then between fall and winter, we have stick season. Right. When the leaves have fallen and the snow hasn't yet. And you look up and what do you see? You see sticks? And um, some of you may have heard of stick season because another local uh, creative yeah. has a very famous song right now yes. called Stick Season. And he's from right around the corner. Yes, isn't that it is. Um, one of the problems with stick season, however, in terms of picking what it is you're going to cook during that season is that... Um, as Barbara Kingsolver has talked about in um, Animal Vegetable Miracle, it's also the hungry season because yeah. it is before anything is coming up through the ground and after, and when the, the stores are running low. low. So when it comes to sort of creating food around that season and starting with six sticks or starting with the mud season, sorry, um, you know, what are your, what was your thinking around, around what you were going to do if you start with that season? Right. Um, well, for me, what is so lovely about it is that it's around Halloween. And I think, you know, I think root vegetables, I think it's gourd season yeah. too, yeah. right? So you've got decorative Stick gourd seasons and great you, can still, yeah. you can still yeah. eat. So. Yeah. And I was thinking it is it is these very hearty, starch-forward roots right. that kind of rule yeah. the day. Yeah. Um, apples too, 
are, you know, everywhere. And I think stick season is when I usually find those wild apple trees mm-hmm. that I didn't know existed because right. they're still clinging. They're the ones that are still around. They're the ones that That's survive. what our ba- that was what was in our backyard. They yeah. looked cultivated, but they weren't. They were wild apples. They're wild, and you can find them, and you can make cider, and you can make... They're great for baking because, yeah. you know, they, they're fantastic. So I have Marlboro pie, which is often considered the first apple pie in the Americas. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it is really lovely, and I, I kind of consider it what what bananas are to banana bread, apples are to Marlboro pie. Oh, Because they can be past their prime because the sugars will have concentrated and because right. you essentially pulverize them. Uh, and it's, it's like a custard pie, mm-hmm. essentially. Because you pulverize them, you, and you can't use applesauce. You, like, have to use that mm-hmm. apple. Otherwise, the texture's off. It's just a fantastic thing to use during that period when you think, I wouldn't use this apple for a traditional apple pie. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't just eat it fresh. But for a Marlboro pie, yeah. it totally works. Yeah. It totally works. Okay, so then what do you do during mud season when you're, we're in that pre-asparagus, pre-rhubarb, post-stores starting to run out, yeah. hungry season? Well, mud, I mean, mud season is also sugaring season. So yeah. it's, all, it's that wonderful time where... Vermonters celebrate the maple. And yeah. And the donut and the pickle. And the donut and the pickle. And it's and you know, people are like, how how could you have those together? It's like, well, until you until you try (laughs) these things together, you you know, just just wait. It's fantastic. But it is very maple forward and um, unapologetically so. I will not apologize for the fact that it's an all essentially an all maple chapter in this book. But the story of maple, I just think it's, I don't think there is a mistake that I live in a state where sugar comes from the trees, mm-hmm. like the, yeah. <laughs> that it just flows. And we have these two ancient maples in our backyard that are magic and they, um, they, they sap themselves. So you don't have to tap them. So when you look at the snow around them, I know it's time to tap them because it looks like maple syrup has been dripping. What it is is the sap is running from the bark and it's taking the tannins from the bark and it's ta- oh, cool. it di- and it's dyed, right? So it has the color of an amber maple syrup, wow. though it's not because you have to boil it down. Yeah. Uh, but the tree is weeping and saying, tap me, tap That's me. really it's cool. Like, oh, the tree's telling me to. I better do it. That's really cool. Okay, so from a narrative perspective... When you're laying this book out in your head and you're trying to figure out how it's going to work, for you, I'm trying to, as someone who writes just the words and never deals with the pictures and doesn't have to deal with the recipes, do you focus on a recipe and write the narrative around it? Or do you, or is the narrative coming first? How how does your process work for a cookbook? It's a bit of both, I think. So some sometimes I just have a, like, I'll have recipes I think, oh, I have to share these. And then you figure where they would go into the narrative, right? You can right. Pl- you plug them in. That does happen. But sometimes it is like kind of you want to tell. For me, this was so much about tell, about sharing what it's like to live here. Mm-hmm. And clearly food is one of the, <laughs> the, the star of my show, right. <laughs> which right. is my life. Right. Um, and so... I felt it was just just this really natural confluence of food and story for me. And that comes through, which is one of the reasons I love this book so much, is that you you do pause to read the text. It's, and you know yeah. the joke these days about how if you want to go online and get a recipe, you have to scroll through pages right. and pages and pages? And I hardly ever read that stuff. 
I don't either. Ditto with the with cookbooks. I hardly ever go through all the oh, and here's what we were thinking that. But this book reads like a memoir. This book yeah. reads like a book about, and your love for Vermont is clear. In this I'm, book. I, yeah, I'm very, I'm very. So I have a, a few opinions about that. I don't, I don't like those huge intros to recipes that are like. Today I went to the store and I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I don't need to know this. What I do need to know though is why you. Why are you sharing this recipe? Mm-hmm. What is it about you that makes me want to try this? Mm-hmm. I think uh, I love writing head notes of recipes because I, I'm essentially, for every recipe, I'm introducing myself to you again and saying, oh, that's lovely. and saying, this is why you trust me to try this. Uh, this is why you have to know why the author loves it in order for you to approach it. Yeah. Is it something that I mean? A lot of a lot of cooks have gotten into trouble because they're essentially making a Middle Eastern stew from a very you know North American perspective without acknowledging where it comes from, what the influence was, and why they are the one that should share the recipe. Right. And that's not to say that just because you love something doesn't mean you shouldn't share it. You should, but you should say why you love it, what you're influenced by. And, and how it might differ or might not differ from what would be considered the original. I've thought a lot about that when I, I am trying to spread the gospel of the Korean chung process. Yeah. Um, and for me, that process is so important. And a chung is just for our listeners. You take 50, you take fruit, and I love it with really tart fruit. My yeah. favorite ones have been like with kumquat or currants or whatever. And you take that fruit and you take the same volume in sugar and you make sure that everything is coated. And then it's part just letting the um, hydroscopic uh, sugar pull the, the water out of the fruit. And it's a little bit fermentation sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's important to me because I'm an alcoholic and I cannot drink yummy cocktails. Right. So for me, it is very much a part of my recovery story. I've tried lots of different syrups and blending Mm -hmm. things and straining things. And Chung has become one of my favorite ways to do this. Right. So that helps me, number one, you know, separate from the fact that absolutely I'm appropriating this for another culture, Mm -hmm. but it is also now meaningful to me because of this thing. Yeah. And and I think that I think sharing recipes, if they have meaning to you, is an important thing to do as well. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we are the great melting pot, so we're mm-hmm. influenced by a thousand and one different cultures. Yeah. And I use Maggi, which is something that's us from Switzerland that all Germans have in their pantries. But I can buy it at the Asian grocer, grocer right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, that's nuts. You do sing the gospel of the Maggie. Maggie. The Maggie you put one. it in there as one of your pantry essentials. It is. It is. I mean, there, <clears throat> I, cannot, I cannot live in a kitchen without Maggie. That is, I grew up with it. It's just the most magical thing. Um, I really believe in the story of food. And, mm-hmm. and, and in writing this book, I felt that I wanted to to sing the song of Vermont and tell the story of food of Vermont. And, mm-hmm. But it's but it's what you bring to it, right? So it's like a lot of it is German and lucky. And a lot of it is 
from Ray's back, my husband Ray's background, who his mother was born in a Japanese internment camp, and so he's half Japanese, and his father is Mexican and native, and so there are all these disparate things, and it's the story of America, and it's the hardships of America, and it's the food that we comfort ourselves with, and the things that you, the loves of your life bring to your mm-hmm. table, which yeah. is fantastic. So now I have, I have dashi that I put in everything because <laughs> it's, it's another magic. It's like yeah. another umami bomb that I love so now, much. Now, do you go, do you make your own dashi with the kombu and, and the I've, flakes I've, or do you get the instant dashi? Well, I do have, so I, I do it in different ways. I do have the kombu because I also have a macrobiotic vegan history. Gotcha. That I grew up. So kombu was a part of our, our household and, uh, you know, a lot of unhappy memories of my stomach being distended from the, the breakfast of the macrobiotic breakfast. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> So they were re- they were ingredients that were very familiar to me, but the da- I I love the dashi granules that if I'm just making a sauce or a soup and it's just like that yeah. kind of imperceptible lack of of thing. Yeah, and I'm like what what is it that I'm missing? And then sometimes I'll put a little dashi in there and it'll just like that umami bomb will just round it out. Yeah, that, I love dashi. It does the dashi so instant dashi. It's so good. Since Ray came up, I would love to close with um since we're we're definitely going over, which is fine with me because this is there's so much to talk about here but one of the things that a cookbook author is going to have to deal with is the photography and can you talk first about how it's worked with your other books yeah and then how it works with how it worked very differently I would like to add for mm-hmm. this book very differently so traditionally what would happen is that the cookbook author would turn and this has been every one of my books except for this one you um, are alone for a year two years writing this book as we all do when you write and then you hand it in and then you've got a, a maybe a week two if you're really lucky to have a photographer take the pictures of the meals the recipes in the book sometimes it's done in a studio with food professionals who do it or sometimes they'll like for me they've always come to me and it has been this just a that would be so hard to send your stuff off and then have someone else. Some, some people it. like to do that, and I don't understand it. It would yeah. give me I, there's no way. Yeah. So I've done all of this always myself. So, but that said, that is like a week or or two if you're lucky of just nonstop hell. It's dirty. It's not none of nothing that is coming out of my bakery or the kitchen is exactly how I would want it usually. Mm-hmm. Because you are doing everything at once. You're doing like 100 recipes at once. And so you're just crossing your fingers that you can get the ingredients you need in yeah, this limited just, period of time. You're just right. ticking it off. You're like, I got that picture done. And you're like, you just have to live with the fact that it isn't as you would have wanted it. Mm-hmm. In, in this case, um, as I was writing the book, my husband Ray is his studio is upstairs where he, he is an artist. So he draws storyboards for film and television but he's also a photographer and so I would be able to finish a recipe and have it looking as I (laughs) would like it and the light would be just right and it would be in season I would scream up Ray get your camera and this was always a question is every are all the batteries charged yeah (laughs) and he would come and take the picture and there, sure, there's stress when it's your husband and you have to like get things just right, and you're like, no, I think it should look like this or that. But the fact that there was so little stress in in the fact that I knew I could take exactly what I wanted, I could mm-hmm. take the time to redo it if I didn't like the way it looked on film, uh, and it was just 
magic, and I won't do it any other way again. Forward. Well, and what's in here are process pictures. You headed outside to go look for the morels. You headed out to right. go to the ramps, that kind of thing. And you can't, I mean, oh. what are you going to do? Invite the photographer to come live with you for a year while it, you're no, dealing exactly with all right. six seasons. Exactly yeah. right. And, and there are times where, like, in my next book, we're already taking pictures for it, even though I haven't started writing, but I know what is going to be in there. And so... Today I said the grape leaves are looking good. Take a picture of the wild <laughs> grape leaves. The cherries are looking nice. Take a picture of the cherries. And then just kind of going through when, like, there are some things like chickweed where mm-hmm. you can only eat it when it's at a certain stage. of like, take the picture now and maybe I'll be able to work on the recipe next year. Right. But I know that it's there and we can take that picture and we can get it done and, like, thank it. Okay. Now I have to ask the organization question because... I get asked all the time how I organize my research, and that's not even visual usually. So how do you manage to, if let's say you have a picture of chickweed, and we get to whenever out from this, um, how do you go back and find that picture? Where, how do you organize this stuff? Well, we have, uh, for the picture specifically, uh, there is something called D-Photo where we upload them and we have folders. And we label the folders with what uh, either what is in it or with a chapter that it belongs to. Oh, so um, that's smart. So that, that will be that. And then that will correspond to how I organize the book. And the nice thing about cookbooks is that, like, especially with my Vermont table, I would just, I literally wrote six different books. Mm-hmm. So I like separated them entirely. And I just whacked it out that way. And it made, it made my uh, squirrel brain so much more relaxed. And that I wasn't looking at six parts right. at once. I was looking at one part at a time. And I, would, I, and I would not look beyond that one part. So I had my notebooks and then I have a separate computer for writing the book. Mm-hmm. Well, it'd be great if I had a separate computer for each <laughs> section, but I don't. I have my squirrel brain computer and then I have my writing computer. Mm-hmm. And they will, they will never get crossed. We moved in the middle of my writing my last book. And so I packed my office according to chapters. Yeah, so you have to. Like I had boxes of this, all this material and it's a mix of all these different things all go with mm-hmm. this chapter so that when I unpacked my office on the other end, at least I had all that stuff for yeah. that one chapter. So so the photography in here is absolutely beautiful. The So how, when it comes down to it, then you're also dealing with a spouse where they may have opinions about what the best picture is mm-hmm. and how you select things. So Um, When it came down to the layout process, when it came, because normally cookbook authors don't tend to have a lot of say in how photographs go, which are the hero photographs and which are the, you know, that kind of thing. Um, How did that work? And was your, was your publisher excited about the fact that they had an extra voice in there or were they concerned about that? Well, they were hands off about it. So, oh, that's nice. We just handed the stuff in. Uh, so the way, uh, so there were some times where, like this picture that's open right before you. It's at uh, the very beginning of the book. It's the very first page. And it is a stunning photograph of a tart. So it's a volavant with the veggies and the bean dip inside. And so <laughs> we we have, a, the great thing about Ray is that we will try, we can try them in like the angle in different ways. As it happened, when I had, I think we did like three or four things on this that day, I had put it on a piece of green Vermont marble just to store, just to have. It's mm-hmm. like, this one's here. Mm-hmm. And then I saw 
the shadow that it cast. Right. I saw that it's mirror image. And oh, I'm it's like, perfect. I'm like, well, we need to see that. I'm like, well, right. it's going to stay here. We're going to do a macro. We're going to get as close as we can and just get that. Um, and so he got it from different angles. And there's sometimes where I have that vision in my head and I'm like, this is how I'd like to see it. And then it just isn't coming out right on the other end through the lens. You know, you hmm. just, you, the way your eyeballs are and you're like, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it doesn't look right. And so Ray would say, this is how it doesn't look right. And this is what we should do. And then, or the light here is just not blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so he would, he would kind of steer me into, but we, the nice thing is that we could take, we could, we could take one for me. Right. Right. We could get that done. And so he could show me. The, so look at it on, and we have a monitor. Look at the monitor. I'm like, ew, you're right. And then, <laughs> and then we would uh, switch it up. But the other thing is I had a rule that we would only use the things that we actually have in views. Mm-hmm. And that's the other story of photography. When you have a photographer come or you send it to someone else, you have a room of kit of just the props right. that aren't yours, right. right? And that they just to, to judge the, photo- the photography. So they'll have, you know, everyone knows that like linen napkin that's all crumpled on the side. Um, and my rule was we will only use the things that we actually use to eat here. So, which is a beautiful metaphor to close on for Vermont eating, for yeah. the way people in Vermont, the way people in any climate that, um, or in any place, but there's a specific thing about Yankees having grown up as a Yankee. Mm-hmm. Um, we are very frugal people and we tend to make the most of the things that we have and um, not tend to outsource and go look yeah. for the stuff that we don't have. So I, I love that as a metaphor for the book. It's really, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I hope our listeners will grab a copy and look at it and read it for the pleasure of the reading, which is something that, um, like I said, is the reason that this book will remain on my shelves, just like Fuchsia's work uh, it remains on my shelves because I go back to it over and over again to read it as a book, as opposed to just using it as a cookbook. I'm not a great baker because I'm not very good at, um, I'm not a detail and precision <laughs> oriented uh, person. So I actually use cookbooks as a source of inspiration more yeah. than as, you know, the exact recipe kind of person. And that's what this book is for me. Yeah. It's very much a source of inspiration. And um, we don't have enough time to go into all the things I love about it. There's the sourdough um, instructions are fantastic. And there's a really cool story about another way to leaven uh, uh, baked goods yeah. uh, that I, I recommend you take a look at when you get this book, because I recommend everyone get this book. Um, speaking of which, is there a place that people could, um, and, and if, if not, that's okay too, but is there, are you doing um, signed copies out of any bookstores in the area? Uh, well, in the area, um, like I will go to Norwich and to Yankee bookstores, mm-hmm. like I like I just was in Norwich signing some books there okay. just because I said, can you sign the stock that we have? So. Okay. So the Norwich bookstore does ship books. I happen to know that. And so and Yankee there, does too. Okay, great. So Yankee bookshop in Woodstock yeah. and the Norwich bookshop in, um, in Norwich, one, two of my favorite bookstores. Yeah, so. Uh, and so if you do want a signed copy of my Vermont table, you can get them from there. And where else can people find you? Oh, on the internet. Gazina VP or Jazine VP. And if you're interested in learning from Gazina, you have to be quick on your feet because it's my understanding that while Sugar Glider Kitchen does, uh, you do classes through Sugar Glider Kitchen, you have to sign up for the emails because it is my understanding that those sell out very quickly. They've, yeah, in fact, like five minutes. We've crashed the site before, so... 
if they're small classes and when I announce the classes, I send out the email and then I just have to turn, I just have to walk away because right. it's very, it's just, it's very stressful. And I've gotten mean emails like, why would you send me an email that their classes when they're all sold out? I'm like, I said in the beginning, you sell out in five minutes. I'm so sorry. Um, but I will put, I will definitely put the the web address for where people can sign up for those emails and, you know, cast their lot of attempting to get into <laughs> classes. And then um, my personal request is that someday you do a Queen Amon um, uh, class. That would be, that's, there is, I have found one bakery, August 1st Bakery in Burlington does individual Queen of Mons. Yeah. They're really lovely, but they are not the same as the one I get up in Montreal that's about the size. It's about 12 inches across and you slice it's it. It's a slicer. Yeah. Oh. So you get you get an even distribution of the super yes. crunchy and then the yes. more tenderness. Yeah. Yes. And I'm going to have to put what that is in the show notes as well, because not a lot of people know about that pastry. And yet I consider it to be my favorite. Well, we call it Queen is the Queen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's killer. Thank you so, so much for, um, for talking about your work. And um, I'm just really excited for people to get this book and sort of use it as an example of what can be. Because I like, I like it when books push out of the constraints of what's expected from them. And this book does that beautifully. So again, thank you so, so much. And until next week, keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. Hashtag AmWriting podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work. If you've been listening to Jessica Leahy on hashtag AmWriting at all, you know thought-provoking, actionable advice is her trademark. But have you taken your relationship to the next level and picked up her latest book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence? Peggy Orenstein called it a vital look into best practices parenting, with advice so smart that we can all benefit from her hard-won wisdom. Conceded. It does not make a good gift in most social situations. Be warned. But it does make a really helpful read. And it's out in paperback, so grab one today.